We had a memory verse in our uh, discipleship group a couple weeks ago. This has nothing to do with the teaching, by the way. Uh, Out of Revelation 5, it's the scene in which uh, John sees the elders and the uh, heavenly creatures and these uncountable myriads, hi Chad, in heaven as they see Christ. And uh, with one loud voice, they're together declaring his praise. That's our future. Uh, Kathy and I and Matt Wilson and Ken Camilla were at a conference almost two weeks ago now in Louisville for a few days. And it was at the uh, KFC Yum Center. It's where the Louisville Cardinals play basketball. And it was a pretty full arena. They said there was about 7,500 people there, almost all men. And when we got there, before the first session, I sit down next to a guy, and he has come to this conference from Sao Paulo, Brazil. He was educated in the States, and and that's back home, and that's where he's serving. And he asked me if I'd ever been to one of these conferences before. I said, well, no, this is my first. His first words are, you're going to love the worship. The preaching was great. I mean, I went with no expectations, as Matt well knew. And it's like I'm there because Matt and Ken are going, you know, I want to be supportive, you know, it's... You know, anyway, uh, <laughs> the, the, the preaching was great, you know, totally challenging, totally great. But as I came away, the thing I'm uh, remembering is the emotional impact of standing in this sea of people. And there's only two occasions in my life in which I've been part of a worship group that I felt like I've got a glimpse of what heaven will be like as I'm sort of, I'm part of, but I'm also sort of consumed by this vast array of voices singing with full hearts and open throats uh, Christ's praise. It was, it was, uh, what did I say? uh, Words fail me. But that's what I came away thinking about. And one of the things I confess as I was standing there, I thought, Lord, you know, one of the only things that I could think would make this better was if, a lion and lamb church was here. That the to be caught up, to not only be adding your voice to the myriad of myriads, but to be caught up in the experience of worshiping Christ was just so great that I just thought, I wish they were all here. So maybe another year. Let me pray and we'll get into the message. Father, thanks that you're God of truth as well as mercy and love. And Lord Jesus, would you honor yourself this morning by showing us uh, both what's true of us, that's sometimes the hard things we need to learn, uh, but also uh, more so what's fully true of you. Uh, Lord, thanks that in our sin you entered this world to redeem us from all of our transgressions and that through rebirth through faith, Lord Jesus, in you. We become new creatures and you transform us into your image. And thanks, Lord, that through the truth of your word, you further that process. And I ask that you do that this morning. Help my words to be according to your will, Lord, and give us hearing hearts, Lord. Help us to hear what you, the Spirit, are saying to us this morning. In Jesus' name. You know, it's interesting to contemplate the history of the world. Uh, if you go back to Genesis, first three chapters, uh, the history of the world, specifically the fall of mankind into sin, and if you think about all that has happened since the fall, all the negatives, all the downsides, all the murder, the death, 
You know, it all goes back to a single act of theft. Work through this with me for just a minute. So the creation account, Adam and Eve put by God, God's image bearers in the Garden of Eden. The world's created, the universe is created. They're there by God's divine appointment. And God says to them in this perfect Eden, this perfect garden, guys, everything is yours. Enjoy everything. It's perfect. You're perfect just the way you are. Enjoy everything. And there's just one prohibition. There's just one thing that I'm not giving to you. It's mine. And it's a tree, and it's the fruit on that tree. And so that's not for you. That's mine. So enjoy everything you want, just that one thing. Don't take anything from that one thing I'm reserving to myself. Now, of course, the account is so short that we assume it's not much time. The serpent, Satan through the serpent, enters the picture, tempts Eve. Eve takes the fruit, gives to Adam who's with her, and they eat the fruit, and they steal the one thing in all their world that could be stolen. There was only one thing you could steal in the garden, the fruit of that tree. The one thing in their universe that could be stolen, they stole. Everything else is theirs, but we've got to have the one thing that God says, that's not for you, that's mine. And in that transgression, there's certainly other elements involved, but in that first theft, in that first act of someone stealing something from someone else, all of humanity fell. And all the murders and all the death and all the sin and everything that's come with it goes back to an act of theft, of someone stealing. We are looking at the eighth of the ten words this morning. After a few weeks off back into this series, the eighth of the ten words this morning, the ten commandments. And if you've been here through the other ones, bear with me as I just remind folks who may not have heard before, what we're about and what we're not about related to looking at the ten words and the eighth specifically this morning. So the ten commandments, they're that superscription, they're the introduction to the law God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai for the nation of Israel. And we don't live under that law and we don't live under that covenant anymore. We live under the new covenant as Christians. Through faith in Christ, the shed blood of Christ, is our entrance into a new covenant in which God writes his laws in our heart And all our sins are forgiven. Our transgressions, as far as God's concerned, never happen. So we're under the new covenant, not the old. But the moral imperatives that the ten words pointed out, as well as the moral imperatives in the rest of that old covenant, they were always true. They were true in the garden. They were true before the law was given. They were true under the law. And they're true today. Now, because we live under the new covenant, we know that we're not earning justification before God based on obeying moral precepts. At the same time, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey me. And for sons and daughters of God, and for those saved and redeemed by Jesus, obedience to God's moral imperatives, those are the ways that we show our dad that we love him. Those are the way we show our Savior we appreciate what he did for us. It's not to say any of us do this perfectly by any means. We all know ourselves well enough to know that. But obedience to these moral imperatives are one of those ways we show God, our Father and Christ, our Savior, we love you. We appreciate what you did for us. So, with that said, with that introduction, Exodus 20, verse 15, short and to the point, the eighth word or eighth commandment, you shall not steal. Uh, The New American Standard there, like the two commands before, this is just two words in the Hebrew, 
Lo, don't or not. Ki ganab, don't steal. Uh, don't take by theft. Don't secretly keep or take something that's not yours. Stealing, by definition, is taking something for ourselves that rightly belongs to someone else. Stealing at other times is keeping something to ourselves that is due another party. It can be positive or negative. It can be positive we reach out and we grab something that doesn't belong to, our, to us. Or it can be negative in the sense that we refuse to give something in our possession that's due to another person. Now, like murder, it struck me working through this. You know, if you teach on murder to a group of Christians, everybody's like, I'm safe. I didn't murder anybody today. I've never killed anybody. But then you work through the command and you say, no, man, I've murdered countless people in my heart and mind at least. I've broken the command in spirit, heart, and mind at least. Well, you start looking through this command on stealing, and I think we all probably feel safe and insulated. We're good on this one. But you know, we're, we're probably not. If you say murder or adultery things, they have a certain moral repugnancy, but stealing doesn't quite reach that level for most of us. But... As you start working through the command, you say, wow, there's a lot to this, and I think I'm guilty. So we'll work through this. Hopefully you've got a study sheet there. We'll start in the Old Testament. So besides the command in Exodus 20, you've got it reiterated in Deuteronomy 5. That's true of all 10 of the words. Also in Leviticus 19.11, don't steal, said again, point blank, same words. Don't deal falsely and don't lie to one another. So Here you see theft or stealing tied to deception and lying. Stealing is a kind of deception or lie. I'm claiming something for myself that's not mine to claim. That's Leviticus 19.11. Or later in that same chapter at verse 36, uh, you shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah and a just hen. By the way, there's six other passages in the Old Testament that reiterate this same theme. So, you know, in the ancient world, no credit cards, no bank accounts. You know, if you went to buy something at the market. Matter of fact, some people here are old enough. You know, when I went with my mom to the market, to the fruit aisle, you've got a scale, right? And you weigh out what you're buying. How many bananas or how many pounds or whatever. Well, back in the ancient world, it was measurements and it's weights and it's scales measuring things out to determine what am I paying and what am I getting? So God says here, basically, in retail sales, in your business transactions, I expect you to do the right thing. And that means if a weight says it's one ounce, it's one ounce. So that someone's not being cheated in what they're not getting, or someone's not being cheated because they're paying too much or keeping too much for themselves. So God says, when you're weighing things out, when you're conducting business, you must do it justly, just weights. You can see here at this level, it's real easy to steal from people in ways that we wouldn't call stealing. But if it's like those balances where we are sort of adjusting the scales a little bit, God says that's theft, that's stealing. This is the first command that has not required the death penalty for breaking it. First command that hasn't required the death penalty which is not to say there wasn't penalty if a thief was caught. So these are just two examples in Exodus 22 and verse 1. If a man steals an ox or a sheep or slaughters it, he, and he's caught, 
he's to repay five oxen for one or four sheep for one. So you could see if a thief was caught, there was a really steep penalty, not the death penalty, but he had to restore what was taken. And in the case of animals, it was five or four times the cost of what he'd taken. That would keep a lot of people from stealing. Also in verse 7 of that same chapter, if a thief was caught stealing funds, he had to replace twofold, the original amount and that same amount again. So no death penalty with this command or this word, but steep fines, steep penalties nonetheless. You know, when you talk about stealing, more often than not, we're thinking about one person taking something from someone else or a person keeping something that's due another person. But you also see in the Old Testament that God says just like the original sin, like the original theft in the garden, God says that we can steal from him also. So if you look at uh, Joshua 7.11, let me set this up very briefly. This is the story of Israel after the Exodus. They've crossed the Jordan River. Moses has died. Joshua's leading them into the land. They get to the first city, Jericho. God tells them what to do, march around once a day, seventh day, seven times, blow the horns, the walls will fall down. Uh, You're to kill everyone, everything that breathes in the city. And they do. It happens just that way. Well, there's a small town near Jericho called Ai. And Joshua says, you know, it's a little town, won't take much. We'll send a small force out. They'll take care of business and we'll go on down the road. But they don't win. They're defeated and many men are killed in that battle. Joshua's tearing his hair out. He goes back to Yahweh and he says, Lord, basically, if you're not with us in this thing, we cannot do this. What's up? And so God says to him, Joshua 7 verse 11, Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant which I commanded them. They have taken some of the things under the ban. They have stolen and deceived. Moreover, they have put them among their own things. When Israel entered the land, you know that under the law, God God required that the Jews give God the first of everything. So the first animal you had, you either gave to God in sacrifice or you redeemed monetarily. Your first child belonged to God, and then later you used the Levites to take the place of the first son of every family. God says the first part of every crop is mine. And it wasn't that God got a little and they got the rest. It was a reminder to them, God is the sovereign dread king under whom you serve and live. And you give him the first of everything as a reminder, you live under him. He owns it all, and as a reminder, you always give him the first and the best. When Israel came into the land of promise, God said, Jericho is mine, and I place it and everything in it under a ban. You're to take nothing out of the city. It's just like another sacrifice in which God says, that's mine, that's not yours. It's like the tree in Eden, that's mine, that's not yours. And when Achan in Jericho, stole the gold and the clothing he stole, not from Jericho, he stole from God. And God says, that's why you're not winning against I. You've sinned. Achan has sinned. It cost Achan his life, his family his life. It also cost the lives of the soldiers who were defeated at I because they had stolen from God. Malachi 3, 8, a passage that's better known for this, 
If you remember Malachi, God's basically indicting the nation there about 400 years before Jesus for the variety of ways. They're not keeping covenant faithfulness. They're not holding up their end of the covenant. And among those things, God says through Malachi, will a man rob God? Will a man, would a person really steal from God? Yet you are robbing me, but you say, how have we robbed you? God says in tithes and offerings, you're cursed with a curse. You are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Under the covenant, they knew this is God's. The first is God's. The tithes and the offerings, it's a given. And Israel wasn't paying the tithes and the offerings. And God says, you're stealing from me. In this case, they weren't reaching out and taking something. They were keeping what God said was his due He said, you're stealing from me. If you move into the New Testament in Matthew 19, 18, and by the way, we've gone to this text repeatedly because this is the story of the rich young ruler. It's also in Mark and Luke. And it's when the guy comes up to Jesus and says, good master, what good thing shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you know the commands, keep the commands. And Jesus there reiterates, don't murder, don't commit adultery, and don't steal. Jesus affirms that same command in his treatment with the rich young ruler. Don't steal, still in force there in the Gospels. Out of the synoptics, but in John's Gospel, it's interesting that in John 10.10, this is the good shepherd discourse, and Jesus, the good shepherd, is comparing himself with the Jewish leaders of the day, false shepherds, and probably ultimately with Satan himself. When he says there, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly, but the thief comes to steal. And there you see steal is connected with death and destruction. A spirit or a person given to steal, it's tied up not only with deception and lying, it's tied up with death and destruction when we're taking things that don't belong to us. There are several other New Testament passages we're not going to look at. I'll close with the one out of Ephesians 4, verse 28. Paul's writing to primarily Gentile, newer converts in the city of Ephesus. And he says, the one who steals must steal no longer. Quit stealing. Quit taking what's not yours. Rather, labor, performing with your own hands what's good, so that you'll have something to share with one who has need. So here Paul says, quit stealing on one hand. And then flip that 180 and now you go and work and make sure that you have enough to share with those who have real needs. You're going to stop taking from others and you're going to start giving to others who have real needs. Now, if you're like me, when I work through these passages, I generally feel like, check, check, check. I'm doing okay. I I think I'm good on this one, Lord. You know, I'm I'm hanging in there little anyway. So maybe most of you feel safe this morning. Let's just work through this a little bit more fully. Uh, Philip Ryken in his book Written in Stone uh, says, we all know today that these things are theft. Uh, Things like burglary, robbery, larceny, hijacking, shoplifting, pickpocketing, purse snatching, embezzlement, extortion, racketeering. And I say, nope, 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 nope. I'm still good. I'm safe. I'm good on this one. But then he, he pursues this list a little further. And I start to get a little uncomfortable. So, for instance, he says, uh, if we cheat on our taxes, we're stealing. If we underpay our taxes, we're stealing. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. If we underpay our taxes, we're stealing. Now, no one likes taxes. And 
probably everyone here would say our taxes are already too high and the government no doubt wants to raise them even higher. And we'll talk about this a little bit more here in just a second. But uh, Jesus was clear, pay to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Paul says, you know, pay taxes to whom taxes are due. First Peter says, obey every ordinance of man. There's no question on this. If we cheat on our taxes, we're stealing money, we're keeping money that doesn't belong to us. God says if it's taxed, if it's due, pay it. If we file false social security claims or insurance claims, we are stealing. We are practicing theft by taking something that doesn't belong to us. You know, on these levels, cheating on taxes, fraud in social security, fraud in insurance claims, we have a rationale that goes something like this. I'm not stealing from a person. It's the government. It's a faceless agency. Uh, or it's a, it's a corporation with deep pockets. Or something like that. But the truth is, if you file a false social security claim or insurance claim, you really are stealing from other people, aren't you? I mean, if just take it where it goes, right? Follow the money. So who pays the taxes to the government by which we derive Social Security? Well, the, the taxpayers do. So that means if I steal from the government, I'm really stealing from you. I'm stealing from every one of my neighbors. If I steal by fraud through an insurance company, there are owners of the insurance company, one I'm stealing from. But of course, their rates are adjusted to cover losses, right? So every one of the person who has a policy under them is paying higher premiums to cover my theft. So there's no such thing as stealing from some bureaucracy. We're always stealing from another person, from other people. Uh, this is a big one. How about employees? If you're an employee, if you're an employee, you're selling your time, your expertise, your energies, your creativity, whatever it is, you're selling that to your employer. You've got, a, you've got a, a balance out there. You've got some weights or scales. And the employer says, I'll give you this much, and you say, and I'll do this, and it's an agreement. It's a sales transaction. So if we find ourselves as an employee, if we cheat on our time card, we're stealing from our employer, aren't we? We're claiming funds that aren't due us. We didn't give it. We shouldn't be paid for it. Some jobs have downtime you know, uh, the employer knows I'm, I'm paying to keep this person here because I've got to have them here, but I know they're not actually being productive. I'm not talking about that. But if your employer thinks he's buying your time, but you're wasting it on phone calls and emails and surfing the web and computer games, that's theft. Your employer is paying you for something you don't deliver. That's stealing. Won't ask for a show of hands on that one either. Uh, if we think, if our employer thinks he's getting something he's not, that's theft on our end as an employee. <clears throat> when we buy things on credit with no ability to repay, we're stealing. It's theft. Now let me put a big caveat here for just a second. We live in an economy right now. Historically, there's no comparison until you go back to the Depression. Businesses have failed. Lots of businesses have failed. Individuals have failed. I mean, this is historically, this is a very unusual time. I'm not talking about people who can't replay, repay loans based on good business practices because of the economy. I'm trying to be careful here in what, what I'm saying. Don't hear what I'm not saying. 
If I intentionally, though, buy things on credit with no ability to repay, I'm defrauding whoever loaned me that money. That's theft. We're not talking about bankruptcy here, okay? Are you with me on this? I want to be careful. I don't want anybody to squirm that doesn't need to. Are you with me? Okay. Intentionally defrauding someone else by buying what we know we cannot pay for. Uh, Another big one, frankly, today, this one's in the news off and on regularly, intellectual and artistic property rights. No show of hands. How many people here have viewed an illegal uh, video, a movie online, downloaded illegally music from shared sites? Uh, Mr. Big or somebody from Australia, you know, is in prison, multi-multi-million dollar business for a website in which people could go and watch and download anything and everything free. It was all theft. It was all stealing because he had no right to sell what someone else had produced. Copyright infringement, downloading, sharing, giving away to other people what we don't have the right to is stealing from the artists, the producers, the writers, the directors, all of those. And because it's an information age and we can transfer files so easily, we do it all the time, we don't think anything of it. It's theft. If we haven't purchased it or don't have permission to use it, that's taking what is not ours to take. It's theft. Besides the individual level, I'll bet at this level 99% of us have just checked off through this list probably. But if you haven't been checked off, don't worry. Your your turn's coming. Um, Corporate theft. Uh, You know, we know that for the last 10, 12 years or so, Theft on the corporate level has just, it's made the headlines. It's been sickening, hasn't it? You go back to, I think, 10 years ago, Enron and Arthur Anderson, in which businesses were lying to the government and to the public and to their investors. And because of that lie, they were stealing money. They took funds and investment under false pretenses. And those investors lost it because they were lying about their business. They were stealing. It was theft. It wasn't theirs to take under a business forum. Securities fraud and insider trading. Uh, You know, back to men with chess briefly. You remember C.S. Lewis said, if your culture doesn't engender character traits, why do you think people are going to behave like they have character? And that is the culture and the time we live in. That's exactly where we live. And we're getting the fruit of this coming down. The chickens are definitely coming home to roost. Insider training, we've raised generations of people with no moral and no character. And they're acting like people without morals and without character. Why are we surprised? Corporate theft. Also, the manipulation of stocks so that stock owners and fund managers are making lots of money while their investors are losing money. And this is intentional. I don't mean the normal fluctuations of the stock market. It's theft. I'm making money because I'm defrauding someone or someone's else. It's stealing. It breaks the eighth word. Uh, the government can steal. Uh, think of wars just to st- for starters here. You know, so I'm a king and I'm the government or I'm a government of one nation and I say, man, I like the view from that other country's uh, parapet. I... I like the artwork uh, Francis has produced. So I'm just going to go take it. 
You know, how much of history is simply war? And what's war commonly? It's theft. It's stealing. I simply have a bigger, better army. I say I can go in and take the wealth someone else has produced. It's theft. Written large. It's the history of the world. Is the history of theft and stealing. Taking what was not ours to take. <clears throat> Stick with me on this one for just a minute. I would argue that perhaps the greatest... Uh, of thieves today, frankly, is, is our own government. And in that sense, it's us. The United States government today, I think, arguably, is historically the, the greatest thief uh, acting in the greatest acts of stealing in the history of the world. And uh, that sounds outlandish, I'm sure, but stick with me for just a second. So, if I'm an individual and I buy things on credit with no ability to repay... That's stealing, isn't it? And what's our government doing? We're buying things on credit. We're spending on credit with no plan to repay. Guys, this is immorality written large because you know what we're doing today. We are stealing from our children and we're stealing from their children. Can you imagine if I went to one of my daughters and said, you know, there's just some nice things that I'd really like to have, but I can't afford them. And so, honey, would you co-sign a note for me? And, uh, and I go and buy my boat. And then, wow, you know, that was nice. Would you mind doing that again? Would you co-sign another note for me? And I buy my new car, and I buy my new house, and I buy whatever I want, and my daughter's co-signing for all of them. I'd be stealing from my willing, loving daughter, wouldn't I? I'm taking all her wealth. Well, guys, $16 trillion in debt in this nation, we are stealing from our children and from our grandchildren and from their children. This economic policy is immorality. It is the eighth word broken, written about as big as you can do it. This is not, by the way, a partisan issue. So under President Bush, in eight years... We racked up $5 trillion in debt. Under President Obama, in three years, we've racked up another $4 trillion in debt. So in the last 11 years, we've got $9 trillion in debt. Now, the U.S. population is around 312 million, and that means whether you think about it or not, every breathing soul in the United States is in debt for the federal budget alone to the tune of $50,000. See, and we're not paying it off. There's no plan to pay this off. In 2010, the latest year I could find figures, our payment on debt service, just interest, was almost half a trillion dollars. One year. This is stealing. This isn't a good business plan. You know, whether uh, there's a line in the sand someplace where it goes beyond good governance. You know, we're, we're, we're borrowing, but we've got a plan to repay. Businesses do that. That's a good thing. That's fine. But when the government, like an individual, is racking up all these payments with no ability and no plan to repay, it's theft on as big a scale as you can imagine. And that's where we find ourselves today. Also, last year, the Fed started by, uh, printing money to buy its own debt. Do you know what this does? Just Steve's the economic guy. He knows where this goes. So, you know the laws of supply and demand. The more there is of something, what? The less it's worth. 
So when the Fed prints money to buy its own debt, what happens to the value of every dollar bill every person has? What happens to it? Its value goes down. Guys, the Fed printing money is one of the biggest acts of theft in history. They've stolen the value of your income. Check this out. If you're, the, if you're in China, if you're the Chinese and you hold one or two trillion dollars, I can't remember what our trillion, I think, one and a half trillion, whatever, in our debt, Chinese government, and you see the Fed printing money to buy our own debt again, you're not happy. Because you know in them doing that, they've just devalued your investment. It's theft. It's stealing. It's taking away from others what isn't ours to take. So we're in a system that is theft and stealing writ as large as it gets. Sticking with the thing on government for just a minute, this command assumes property rights. Okay, you can't say don't steal if someone else can't own something, right? If it's possible to steal, then property rights, ownership is a given. So to the degree that communistic and socialistic governments do not recognize property rights, they're breaking the spirit of this command. You know, communism comes in and says, the individual owns nothing, the state is all, the mother state is all, we own all and we distribute from many, whatever the phrase is, from few to the many or whatever, those of means. Uh, it's breaking the spirit of the eighth word. Property rights are assumed in this. And with all the knocks that capitalism and free markets are getting right now and have been for a while, capitalism and the free market is still the absolute best economic vehicles for helping people improve their lives. Still the best, bar none, absolutely. And it is for lack of the recognition of this command that many of the third world countries remain in the abject poverty they find themselves in. There's a great book on this by Jay Richards called Money, Greed, and God. If you don't have a system, a governmental system, political system, judicial system, by which property rights are enforced can be pretty much guaranteed, guess what? You don't get investments. I'm not going to invest in a place in which I don't know if the government will seize, in Bolivia, for instance, what I own. And the government comes in and says, I'll take that oil refinery. I'll take that gas production center. They're not getting foreign investors. So for third world countries, it's often a lack of the eighth word being recognized and enforced in the judiciary and the politics and the government that keep third world nations third world nations. They don't have the mechanism by which capitalism and free market can improve their lot because they don't have solid property rights, all tied to the eighth command or the eighth word. The observance of this is a a really, really key foundation for all social and economic health. Now, if you still haven't been caught on this one on on stealing, stick with me on this last one, and I think I've got you. Uh, Ten words, related to the ten words... I would argue that you cannot break one of the other nine prohibitions, nine commandments or nine words, without breaking this eighth 
word. Joe, we've talked about this. So just, just work through these with me briefly. We violate the first and second commands when we steal what is due to God by refusing him glory, I'm God, have no others, or by worshiping him as someone or something less than he is through idolatry. We are stealing the glory that God says he is due. We're breaking the eighth word. We break the third command when we steal God's glory by attaching his name to vanity. We talked about this before. Christians are great about this. We attach God's name to something God doesn't claim. We rob God of his due, of the glory due, his name. We're stealing glory from God. We break the fourth command by robbing God when we don't give him our time. Guys, these few breaths, this shadow of a life we have on the earth that we're here to love, serve, and honor God, if we don't give him our time, we're robbing God of his due, our creator and our redeemer. We steal the honor and respect due our parents when we don't show them deference or care for them in the ways we're able to. Now, no guilt trip on this. If you didn't hear the teaching on this, we do this as we're able. Sometimes there's mitigating circumstances in which simply on our end of things, we can't get there. Uh, I'm not talking about that. But we rob our parents of what is their due if we don't keep the fifth command. If we steal someone's life in deed or in thought, we break the sixth command, we murder. The seventh command, if we take, steal another person's spouse or future spouse through adultery or immorality, we're violating the seventh command. We break the ninth word when we rob from another person the right they have to their reputation through slander. And we break the tenth word when in our hearts and thoughts we covet those things or people or situations God has given to someone else and not to us. If you break one of the ten words, and we all have and we all do, we've also broken the eighth command. There's no way around it. We've taken what doesn't belong to us. We've held what was due to someone else. I think, I'm convinced, that we underestimate to an extraordinary degree the ways and the means by which we, and I mean we in this room, and I mean we our culture, I mean we our time, break this word day in and day out. In fact, just like murder and just like adultery, we are arguably in a time of history in which theft and stealing is more common than any other period of history. There's more opportunity. And in our sinful dispositions, we take advantage of that. I've got my cue. I need to cut some stuff here, guys, just so I don't lose you. Uh, Let me just go down to... uh, God has a better way on all of this for us. You know, if if we're tempted to steal to take what isn't ours, to hold on what is due someone else, it really gets back to sort of a way we're looking at life or how we see our position, doesn't it? It gets back to a sense of contentment, being content or not being content, being jealous or envious or feeling like, no, I'm, I'm good right where I'm at with what I've got. Paul said in Philippians 4.19, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. If we have needs, to the degree we have needs, we have a commitment from God our Father to meet them, through Christ's resources. How limited do you think Christ's resources are? 
unlimited. So we have a promise from God our Father to meet our needs through Christ's resources, unlimited. Sometimes the truth is we're simply not content where we're at. We're not content with what God has given us or where he's put us in life. That's another issue. Then we need to get right with God. We need to repent of jealousy or envy or simply not finding our fulfillment in God himself and in the time and the place he's put us. Think of this too, not for now, but think of it for the future. You know, if I told you, let's say you're going to go to college and it's going to be tough, you're going to have macaroni and cheese for four years or spam or whatever is repugnant and abhorrent to you. You know, you're going to eat that for four years, you're going to live in meager place, meager rations. And, and, but after you get your degree, you're going to be wealthier than doctors and tycoons. You'll live any place you want. You'll enjoy everything you can imagine. You probably say, I, I can do this. I can handle that. But that's exactly the situation every single Christian finds themselves in. Because God has said through Paul in Romans that we are co-heirs with Christ. So Romans 8, 16 and 17, the Spirit testifies with our spirit, we're children of God. Our dad is God. And if we are children of God, sons and daughters of God, we are heirs of God. We are our father's heirs. And we are co-heirs with Christ. Co-heirs with Christ. Guys, this isn't just religious language. This is your future. So, what does Jesus get? In the new heavens and the new earth, perfection and God reigns everywhere. How much does Jesus own? Everything. If you're Christ co-heir, what do you own when your college degree is over? You own everything. Children of God, co-heirs with Christ, God is giving us in Christ everything. We're, we're going through college. We're eating some macaroni and cheese sometimes, maybe a little spam on weekends. We're living in some digs that maybe aren't what we thought we wanted. But guys, it's for a short period. We graduate, and with Christ, we enjoy every good thing God's ever conceived for us forever. That's our future. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul's talking to the Corinthians. They're small-minded like us. They're trying to grab a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Paul says, you you don't get it. Everything is yours. Paul is yours. Cephas is yours. Apollos is yours. Things present and things to come are yours. We're busy thinking about houses and cars and stuff and The Lord's saying, forget the small change, guys. Because your future is glorious. You're co-heirs with Christ. Everything with Christ is yours. Get over the small-minded stuff. Let me wind down real quickly. I'll just mention these. They may be on your study sheet. Uh, Look up on your own. Proverbs 30, verses 8 through 9. These are verses that, for me, just help me keep uh, contentment equilibrium. Uh, God, don't give me riches, don't give me poverty. Make me too rich, I'll forget you. Give me poverty, I might be tempted to steal. Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9, great verses. 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 10, key passages just about contentment, about the view of life we have. Guys, if we're content, we're not tempted to steal. We're not tempted to hold on to what God has given us. Be generous with whatever God has given you because it's one of the things that keeps our heart unbound from things If God has given you time, give it away. If he's given you big houses, share them. If he's given you financial resources, give it away. 
be prudent in all this. I'm not saying lack of prudence. But be generous in what God's given you. That way those things don't lock hold of your heart. There's benefit in keeping this command. We stay out of jail. That's a good thing. We maintain clear consciences. That's a great thing. And we live with a sense of peace. Let me close with this. You remember Jesus on the cross. Jesus suspended on a tree above the earth. And, and who's on his right and left hand? Two thieves. Two thieves. Jesus there dying for the sins of the world and for the sins of the thieves on his right and left hand. He's dying for thieves like us. And you know that one thief humbly bows to his divinity, remember me, Lord. And Jesus says to that thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. Guys, Jesus died for thieves like us. Adam and Eve produced a long, long line of thieves. And we're in that group. And Jesus died for sins like us. And there's hope for people who steal what's not ours and hold on to things that weren't ours to hold on to because Jesus died for our sins. I, I can live with that. I think you can too. Father, thanks that you loved us so much you gave away the one you treasured most highly, your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, though he knew no sin, thank you that he took our sins on himself, not just our thefts, Lord, but every other thing that fell short of your standard and your glory. God, thanks that through simply acceptance, through simple faith of Jesus' death and resurrection on our behalf, we can have, we gain eternal life. We become co-heirs with the creator and redeemer of the universe. Lord God, would you honor yourself by showing us more fully the riches we have, not in stuff, but in you. And Lord, would you help us to hold the stuff loosely and lightly so that we can gain and our hearts are more, are more full, Lord, are hungry for more of you. God, thank you for your promises. In Jesus' name, amen.